0: Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and we'll begin by reading together from verse 14 to verse 30. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, as we consider what true greatness is, what reward you offer for it, and what judgment there is for those who refuse it, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand what it means to be like you. That we would understand and comprehend what you have done and what you are calling us to do. Show us the truth of your word and change us by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over the last three weeks, we focused our attention on the Passover and the Lord's Supper. It is Thursday evening, which is also considered the start of Friday, the night that Jesus will be betrayed, the evening before his death. This is the last meal that Jesus will share with his disciples. It is the last time he will eat. Before his resurrection. His arrest. His trials. His condemnation. His death. Will all be finished within 24 hours. He will eat this meal with his disciples. Walk to Gethsemane. And be arrested. We saw the shadow. Of the Passover meal. How it pictured. God over. Passing over. The Israelites, rather than killing the firstborn, passing over them and sparing them. And we saw the dawning of the new covenant as Christ instituted communion, the body and the blood of Christ saving us from the wrath of God, very much like God passing over us. And in the context of that intimate and personal meal, the Lord points His disciples to consider His betrayal. He interrupts the institution of the Lord's Supper to draw attention to the betrayal of Judas and His certain judgment. So let's look together at verse 21 at this certain judgment. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus highlights the contrast between what Judas is doing and what he himself is doing. Look back at verse 17. Take this and divide it among yourselves. Verse 19. He took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying... This is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, the cup, this is poured out for you in my blood. Everything that Jesus had done, he had done on the, on, for, for the benefit of the disciples. He gives, they receive. And yet in the midst of that greatest gift of all... There is betrayal, but behold, as though it were impossible to conceive, that there could be a betrayer at this table. His hand is with me. The one who betrays me is now eating of this meal. Remember back in verse 3 of this chapter, what happened with Judas? Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. What a contrast! Jesus gives himself over for the sake, for the benefit of his disciples. Judas gives over his master for money. And yet, here is Jesus telling us that Judas is with him at the table. Their hands are near each other as they take the bread, perhaps even touched as they passed a cup. They're at a table, the place of friendship, of fellowship, of celebration. Judas reclines with him at table, waiting for an opportunity to betray. There are two Old Testament passages that point to this. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Michael Card's poetic words ring in my ears. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. It is the closeness of Judas, that he is one of the twelve, that makes this betrayal real. This is not an imaginary betrayal. It's not just for the record. Christ feels this pain. He experiences what you and I would at the betrayal of a friend. And then the second Old Testament referent, Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. This is the suffering of Christ so that even as he is pouring out his blood, his body is being broken, he is being betrayed by his close friend. This is the contrast that Jesus highlights. And yet, but behold, the one who betrays me is here with me. Second, Jesus eliminates Any possible excuse. Look at verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The contrast is highlighted, and now the excuse is eliminated. From Christ's perspective, he knows he is about to die. Back in chapter 9, he told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then again in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then just a few chapters, previous chapter 18, just before they enter Jericho, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus knows what is going to happen. He knows what is going to happen. His father has determined it. This is why he came to die. And so, perhaps because of its foreordination, some might think, well, if God ordained it, what could I do to prevent it? If God established it ahead of time, then it's already been determined. Then surely it's not my fault. No, Judas will be held responsible. God's sovereignty does not remove man's responsibility. Yes, the Son of Man will go as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he goes. By whom he is betrayed. Judas's guilt and his responsibility are certain, and so is his judgment. In our church, where there is a high view of God's sovereignty, we hope, where God's sovereignty is taught and preached, it's good for us to be reminded that that sovereignty does not diminish our own personal responsibility. That what we do has consequences. That what we do matters. That God will judge. Both good and evil. Yes, God sovereignly allows every act of unrighteousness. But he also holds the actor responsible for every act of unrighteousness. If you want to think more about this, we did a four-part series back in March of last year. You're welcome to check online. But for our purposes here in Luke, Jesus eliminates any excuse that Judas might have. Yes, it has been determined ahead of time. No, that does not mean Judas's guilt isn't real. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And the certainty and severity of this judgment lead to point C, the examination of the disciples. The disciples are examined. Look at verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Listen to how the disciples respond. They question one another There's an element of almost unbelief. Who it could possibly be would be a completely legitimate translation. Who could it be? Who could it be? So they begin to discuss who is going to do this. And from that statement, I I take two important points that Luke wants us to understand. First, none of the disciples knew that it was Judas. None of them knew that it was Judas. It would be very easy, when Jesus says this, for them all to say, Ah, of course, yeah, that's Judas. We tend to think of ourselves as being great judges of character. Maybe not all of us, but some of us do. We think, I could tell the bad guy from the good guy. Not one of the other eleven could have told you that it was Judas. They didn't get that weird feeling around him. They didn't know. He fit in perfectly with the rest. So that when Jesus says, someone's going to betray him, nobody says, ah, Judas. And we would do well to consider that. Betrayers don't wear signs that identify them as such. They don't tell us who they are. They keep it a secret. But second, not only did none of them recognize that it was Judas, each of the disciples is considered a potential possibility. Luke doesn't give us much detail here. But there is a legitimate consideration of each disciple. They began to question one another. It was not part of them questioning some of them, but it was all of them questioning each other and even themselves. They're questioning each other, the whole group, not just a few. Well, these are the most likely candidates. It's probably. No, they didn't have that. They were all questioned. And I think it's important for us to remember it's especially true in times of communion where this takes place, but at all times, is it possibly within my own heart to do this? We must view ourselves as capable of great wickedness, and we cannot be content to point the finger at someone else and say it must be them. In Matthew's account, He says, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And that self-examination is the exact lesson that Paul draws our attention to in 1 Corinthians 11. This is the passage we read from almost every time we take communion Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So, in light of this great sin of betraying the Son of God, we do not turn up our noses as if to say we are morally above that, we are superior and incapable of such sin. We bow our heads. In sorrow, and say, Lord, is it I? That could be me if it was not for God's grace and God's mercy. While that sobering thought doesn't last very long, look at what happens in the next verse. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest of course right <laughs> that's the logical next step and lord could it be i oh but before we laugh at the disciples which i think were intended to do we have to see how much of ourselves are in them a dispute arose among them Now, in verse 23, I think there is a legitimate note of humility as they consider who it could be. But now there is a shift. A shift in the discussion. Most translations include a break here. I know I have a title above verse 24. Who is the greatest? Yours probably has something like that. And that's fine. I'm not sure that that's entirely wrong. But Luke doesn't do that. Luke doesn't add that title. And his break in 24 is a normal conjunction. Very simple. It is not a contrast. And I do not believe it is a new major section. At best, it is a new minor section. So that you could read verse 24. And so a dispute arose among them. There is a logical connection between 23 and 24. I don't think this is too much of a stretch. We start saying, well, Lord, could it be me? Could I be the one to betray him? We look around the room. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Could it be you? Could it be you? And very quickly, what they're arguing about is not whether or not it's me, but why it's not me. Don't we do this in our own arguments with people? Very illogical. (laughs) We make leaps in our arguments from one point to one completely unconnected. And here the disciples are saying, is it me? Is it me? No, I don't think it's me. Here's why I don't think it's me. Do you remember way back when, when I did such and such? And in fact, I'm probably the best one here. (laughs) That's usually how our arguments run. I am so good. You have no idea how good I am if you understood how righteous and perfect I was, you would never accuse me of such a thing. It's uncomfortable even to say that. (laughs) But that is exactly how we act. That's exactly how we act. So they discuss, they discuss who could it be, and then the topic changes, not to who it could be, but who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? So the shift is first from defending themselves, number one, to promoting. They move from defending to promoting or examining to promoting. And then two, they move from a discussion to an argument. They move from discussion to argument. Luke highlights this. He uses a much different word. The the word for they began to question in verse 23 is a rather um, ambiguous or neutral word for a discussion. It could be a positive discussion. But 24, a dispute, is very much not neutral. It is a negative argument. They're fighting now. They're arguing. The intensity with which they discussed whether or not they were guilty or could be guilty isn't matched by the intensity of their argument for who's the greatest. They are much more confident in that than in who's guilty. We move from discussion to argument. Why are they arguing? They're arguing over who is the greatest. Now, imagine that you're there in the room. And you're participating, you're one of the twelve, and you're going to make your case for why you're the greatest. Why would you do that? What prompts us to fight and argue? Why do we argue with other people and fight with them? Not to defend the Lord, not to proclaim his truth, but for ourselves. Why do we do it? Maybe you have quarrels in your home with your children at work. Maybe you're quarreling with your spouse or your boss or your teacher or your parents. Why? What causes these quarrels? Look at James with me. Familiar passage, but so applicable. James chapter 4. James asks in chapter 4, verse 1 What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why are there fights and arguments among you? Is it not this? So why are the disciples fighting? Why are they quarreling? Because they want something. They want it and they're not getting it. This is why we fight with each other. Because when Peter stands up and says, guys, I'm pretty sure it's me. He, he said that he was going to build the church on me. He said he was giving me the keys to, to heaven and Hades. I'm the one... It's probably me. What did Peter expect them to say? You make a good case, Peter. I think you're probably right. It's probably you. And when they don't say that, but they instead contest, and James and John get up and say, yeah, but the other day we were asking him if we could sit on his left and right, and he didn't say no. Right? And they're arguing with each other because they want something and they can't have it. They're coveting and they can't obtain it, so they quarrel and they fight. Well, Jesus addresses this in an unexpected way by shifting a definition. So we move from a shift in discussion to a shift in definition. In verse 25, listen to what Jesus says. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. So that's where he's going to get in verse 26. Not so with you. But he starts with these Gentile kings. So we need to change our definition of greatness. Let's first look at what the world says about greatness. And then we'll see what Christ teaches us about greatness. Which is probably not what you're expecting. Look at verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. I hardly need to explain this. We know how it works. What do people who have power do? What do they do? They control people. They control people for their own advantage. That's what we do when we have authority, when we have power in our flesh, in our human nature. What are we going to do with that power? Who are we going to serve with that power? We're going to serve me. Because I like me. That's what we're going to use our power for, to serve me. So if I have authority, if I'm the governor, if I'm the king, if I'm the president or mayor or governor, if I'm the boss, what am I going to do? Make you serve me. I will control you for my own advantage. Everyone knows this. You experience this all the time. People are used for the advantage of the person with authority. And then the second thing he says is that these kings make everyone acknowledge their greatness. It's an odd way of saying it, but what Luke says is those in authority over them are called benefactors. Probably better translated, have themselves called benefactors could be passive or a middle, and the middle would read, they have themselves called benefactors. Now, the reason I say that is Christ is saying this is a negative thing. This is not a good example. This is a bad example. The kings of the Gentiles do this. You should do this. Well, what is it the kings of the Gentiles do? They have themselves called benefactors. It's not wrong to be called a benefactor. If you bless people and do good things for people, and you're called a benefactor, you haven't done anything wrong. So what is it that they're doing wrong? It's that they want to be called the benefactor. They want to be known as the benefactor. They want to be known as the big guy who blesses people. Why do unbelievers start nonprofit organizations that help the poor? Because they want to be known as benefactors. They want to know, they want everyone else to know, they're doing good. Look at the good that I'm doing. Look at me. So the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority have themselves called benefactors. This is how the world approaches greatness. Every one of us knows this if you've ever had an ounce of authority or an ounce of power even on the playground. What do you do when you get that power? Your natural inclination is to use it to your own advantage, make people recognize who's the best. (laughs) <laughs> oh, so many funny conversations you have when you're a little kid about how great you are and how you're the fastest or the strongest. Foolish. But Christ gives us a new definition of greatness. And this is what I want to spend the next several minutes looking at. Verse 26 But not so with you. Rather, Now, I think if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard this teaching before or something very similar to it. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The greatest should become as the least. Those who are least among you are actually the greatest. If anyone thinks that he is a leader, let him be as a servant And I think we get that on a physical level. We get what he's saying on a physical level. Next week, we're going to have a Fifth Sunday Fellowship. And everyone's going to sit around waiting to see who gets in line first. Pastor Jeremy does that. He says, I'll take it. I'll do do you all a favor. I'll hop to the front of the line. What is everyone else sitting around saying? I don't want it to be me who's first, because then everyone's going to think that I'm making myself first. And I know there's that verse in the Bible about the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We get this. We help wipe tables, put away chairs. But is that what Jesus is teaching here? Is Christianity just the religion that values service? Is Christianity just the religion that likes servants more than other religions do? Is Christ merely telling leaders that they should be involved in more menial tasks? If all we take from this instruction is the superficial humility of performing less desirable chores, I think we're missing something major. Now let me give you three reasons why Christ is not telling us just to serve more. Jesus is not telling his disciples, you need to be involved in more menial tasks. First, three, I'm going to give you three reasons. First, Christ himself did not spend his time waiting tables. You read through the Gospels. How many times does he wait on tables? How many times is he said to be doing dishes? How many times is he preparing a meal? You might find some. Perhaps you could find a few verses where maybe it's implied, but you don't. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. What does he do all the time? He teaches and he heals. He teaches and he heals. Constantly teaching, constantly healing. If the definition of true greatness is service, and service is doing menial tasks then Christ isn't that great of an example. Maybe Mary or Martha would get the award. I don't know. No, Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, when Jesus explains in what way he is a servant, this is maybe the verse you're even thinking of. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does he define service? By giving his life, not by washing dishes. Wash your dishes. (laughs) But that's not the point. That's not the point. He points to his death. He does not point to menial tasks. Second, if you look down at verse 28, which we'll get to in a minute, what is the basis for the rewards that he is promising? He does not say in verse 28, you are those who have served and waited on tables, therefore I'm going to give you kingdoms. He says, you are those who have been with me in my suffering, in my trials. Not that they served a lot but that they suffered a lot. Third, if we look at the book of Acts, the specific issue of the apostles serving comes up in chapter 6. And they make the opposite decision from what you would expect. Listen to Acts 6. Verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They weren't getting as much food as everyone else. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So, this is every known believer, virtually. There's probably exceptions, but everyone in Jerusalem, at the very least, in Israel gather them all together. And the 12, these 12 that are being spoken of in Luke 22, these 12 say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is the exact word that Jesus uses here. The word we get from uh, deacon. We get deacon from that word. A deacon is a servant, one who serves. Not a slave. That's a, a different word. A servant, one who waits on tables. It is not right that we should neglect the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, to deacon, to serve tables. But I I don't get it. Because Jesus says, if you want to be great, then you need to be like a servant. He says that in in verse 27. Who's the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves at table? Is it not the one who reclines? He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Why didn't they do that? Because there is a greater service than waiting on tables. It is not right that we should give up Preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so, evidently, when Christ says service is what we're after, he is not limiting that to menial chores. He's not eliminating medial chores. Some of you need to hear the message to go home and help out around the house a little bit more. See, I saw those wives (laughs) elbowing. Probably more like the dads hitting the kids. That's you he's talking about. If Christ is teaching here a new service ethic and we're supposed to be serving more, Then why did the apostles, with the blessings of all the believers present and full of the Holy Spirit, why did they devote themselves to prayer and the word instead of waiting on tables? So the message that Christ is giving is not one merely about serving and performing menial tasks. All right, so what is he talking about? We get it at the spiritual level. You understand, okay, we're supposed to be last. We're supposed to serve. But what is he getting at at the spiritual level? I want to walk through this in three points. These are the bold points if you're not sure where we are. Why do rulers make others serve them? Okay, think about this. Step back for a second. Why do rulers make others serve them? If you had all control, if you were the king, I gave you the scepter, everyone has to obey you, what are you going to do? You're going to tell people what to do. You, get me something to eat. You, massage my feet. You, go mow the lawn for me. Actually, I like mowing the lawn. But that's what we're going to start doing, issuing orders to people. Why? Think about this. Think about the greatest rulers in history. What does Alexander the Great do when he's done conquering the world? He gets bored, but what what does he do? Does he sit around and serve people? Why does he make other people serve him? Why do our great ones, our leaders today, have other people serve them? Because they are finite. They're finite. What do finite people need? Help. (laughs) The reason that rulers make other people do things is because they lack strength. Why do I want someone else to wash the dishes for me or make a meal for me? Why at the end of a long day do I come home and I want someone else to discipline my children? Why would I want that? Because I am, I'm tired. Because I'm weak. Because I lack what I need to do it. That's why leaders make other people serve them. Now, what does that prove? It proves that that leader is not actually great. Because if I need someone else to do the chores for me, what does it say about me? I can't do it all on my own. Uh, take, Take a step back. When I think about God and who he is... One of the things that sets him apart as entirely other than me is that it doesn't cost him anything to work. He's infinite. He was not tired on day six when he finished his creation. He didn't take a deep breath and say, okay, let's get back to work tomorrow. Let this sink into your minds. The God of this universe does not tire. He's not exhausted. He doesn't ever need a break. But if I'm the leader, if I'm the one who's in charge, I'm limited. It's hard for me to work, and I run out of energy, and that's why I make other people serve me. Remember the words of Paul at the Areopagus, Acts 17, God is not a God who is served by human hands as though he needed anything. That's what we think about God. And if we think that Christ is saying, hey, the servants are the greatest because God needs something and you've got to serve him, you're worshiping a different God. The God who we serve is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. We never contribute to something he's lacking. This is why Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served but to Serve and give his life as a ransom. Why does Christ serve us? Why does he serve us? To show the abundance of his riches and because he is a savior. Why does Christ serve us? To show the abundance of his riches and because he is a savior. So why do rulers make other people serve them? Because they lack, they're finite, they're limited. Why does Christ serve us? To show that he is infinite, that he lacks nothing, that he has an overflowing wealth, an abundance of riches, and because he loves it. He loves to serve. He loves to save. It's who he is. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 10. We'll wrap up here. 2 Corinthians 10, listen to this. Paul says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for. pause there. If I boast a little too much of our authority, So he's talking about his authority. If I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave. So where did you get that authority, Paul? From the Lord. The Lord gave it. Why did he give it? The Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be ashamed. Do you know why the Lord gave authority? To build others up. This is what true authority, true leadership looks like. Why did Christ serve? He serves to save because he is a savior and to show his abundant riches. All right, so then why should leaders serve? In Luke 22, why should the leader become as the one who serves? To show the abundance of God's strength in their Weakness to show the abundance of God's strength and their weakness. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, you know this verse. Verse ten. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am. Strong. This is the definition of true greatness. Not just waiting on tables. That's good, do that. Not just doing menial tasks. The definition of true Christian greatness is displaying God's strength in your own weakness. That's true greatness. When God has served you, when God has given you strength that you are able then to give to others. Now, in all of that, who gets the glory in the church? The elders, right? (laughs) That's absolute foolishness. Who gets the glory in the church? The one who gave the leaders strength. So that we can all point back to Christ. When you give someone encouragement, it's not just, hey, you're such a great person. But it's, I see what God's doing in you. God gave you the strength to do that. When you tell others why you were able to do something, it's not, yeah, I've been working really hard on that. And I finally got it all figured out. It is what? God gave me strength. To God be the glory. He is the one who gave me the strength. He served me. Why did he serve me? Because I'm great? Because I'm important? No. Because he is a savior. And he has no lack. Alright so look at the reward then. I uh, <clears throat> don't have a lot of time. But it flows. flows right out of this. Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. So the basis of the reward of the apostles is suffering. The basis of the reward is suffering. You have been with me in my trials. You've stayed with me in my trials. Uh, I don't have time to read it, but you know Mark, Mark 10, James and John go to Jesus. Hey, let us sit in right and left. And Jesus says... Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to undergo? What is he talking about? He's talking about his own death. So what is the basis of the reward is the suffering. That's the basis of the reward, not greatness. The greatness, or not in that sense, greatness. Uh, the, The gifts or the strength that you have comes from God. The basis is the suffering. Then second, 2nd verse 29, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. A kingdom. What is the nature of the reward? The nature of the reward is leadership. Now think about this. For those of you who think heaven is getting out of all work, heaven is the assignment of more work. But it's the best work, the greatest work. When Jesus says uh, the parable of the ten minas, you've been faithful over this. I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. That's what he says. You're going to be the mayor of ten cities. What's the reward? The reward is additional leadership. It's more authority, more responsibility. And then the th- third, the purpose of the reward why why give out these rewards verse 30 that you may eat and drink at my table now note how that ties back into where we are we're at the communion table that you may eat and drink at my table where in my kingdom In my kingdom, he says, I'm going to let you sit in my kingdom at my table, and we're going to eat together. The purpose of the reward is fellowship, and then look at what he does, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones looking cool. (laughs) Sit on thrones judging The 12 tribes of Israel. That's what they're going to do. So it's not only fellowship. It is also perfect imitation. That's your final blank imitation. That is our reward. That we will be with him. And we will become like him. As finite creatures. Our greatness. Is not about who can do more chores. Our greatness is who can be served by God, who can say, in my weakness, God made me strong. It is only in our weakness, in our suffering, that we can be truly great. And when we do that, we display, we demonstrate, we project what God is like, and we show how great he is. In Luke 19, Jesus says, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And with that authority, we imitate our Lord when he says, The master will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at table and go and serve them. Let's pray. Lord, this is unlike anything the world has to offer. We do not come to you with something to offer you. We come to you for you to serve us. Because you are without limit. You are the great one, not us. And as we consider these thoughts, Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts, our minds, our lives upside down. That we would not be working in our own strength, but that in our weakness we would work with the strength that you provide. So that we, should sh- we could show the world that our strength comes from you, not from ourselves. So that you receive the glory, we receive the blessing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.